Good morning, good morning. It is good to see you and to be with you all this morning. And I'm especially excited to have all you kids with us this morning. Typically, you know, they're downstairs pretty much doing what we do up here, just in a way that is a little bit more kid accessible. And no doubt, Courtney and the entire children's ministry team just love so well on our kids. And so, but it's, I love it when we are reminded, literally, because we're all sitting beside each other, that we are one body, young to oldest. Uh, and it's just a beautiful thing to do that. And so, um, might be a little bit louder in the sanctuary today. It is perfectly okay because we love that we're able to gather and worship together as families. So, glad that you're all here this morning. So let's jump right in. Garrett just read over our text for this morning as well as the coming two Sundays because I just wanted you to hear it all within its immediate context. So right as we begin our text, verses 11 through 12 emphasize how critical it is for every one of us to truly grasp where we've come from, to remember the hopelessness and the death from which we have been rescued. In many ways, verses 11 through 22 mirror verses 11 to 10, and that's where we've been for the past three weeks. But whereas the first 10 verses of this chapter kind of lend themselves to us thinking about our own personal salvation, this entire section that we're going to be dealing with today in the coming two weeks, it just, it teaches that genuine transformative faith doesn't just change an individual's life. It also places Christ followers within a brand new community. And I say brand new because it's unlike any other community on the planet. And apart from Christ, it's impossible to be a part of it. So if we were to take a 30,000 foot view of this second half of chapter two, you might say that the overarching message is that the gospel not only removes the separation between God and sinners, but it also removes the separation that exists between one another, between sinners and other sinners. God draws people from every tribe and language and people and nation. No matter your story, no matter your background, your family of origin, your history, God takes all of us and makes us one in Christ. So let's see if we can't put this into terms that we can really sink our teeth into here in Western Pennsylvania. So what happens in most of your hearts and minds when you see this? Oh, see, I knew it. I knew it, right? There was a little bit of bristling, a little bit of, oh, no. We are Steelers here. We are Steeler fans through and through, death to, I mean, birth to death, right? So, I mean, and it's crazy because we're practically neighbors, right? Separated by just a couple hours, just that little state line. But that is a rivalry that has existed from the start, right? Never shall the two meet. And even their fans, like, we are not friends, <laughs> right? We are not friends. We are not here for the same reason. Uh, my team will win. And even if we don't win, we're better, right? But the gospel, the gospel changes all of that. And it is absolutely astounding. So no matter who we are, no matter where we've come from, no matter the color of our skin, the blood in our veins, or who we root for, in Christ, not only is our relationship with God restored, 
The gospel also makes it possible for those who, are, who were once enemies to become friends in the best and deepest sense of the term. In Christ, we become one. There is one church, one body, and one head over us all. And so what we're going to unpack and see this morning, and in these remaining verses of, of Ephesians chapter 2, is that the gospel has the power to obliterate the hostility and destroy every barrier that separates us from one another. It deflates our ridiculous egos, and it heals the relational damage and scars of forgiven sinners. Being part of the community of God's people, the corporate body of Christ, is part of what it means for each of us as individuals to be in Christ. You really can't have one without the other. Therefore, remember. That word remember is so important. I love the very first song we sang because of that. We gotta remember what God has done. As a matter of fact, Paul says it twice. It's the first word in verse 12 as well. Paul doesn't want them to forget ever. He calls them, he commands them to call to mind and to keep in mind exactly who they were and what was true of them before Christ rescued them. You know, that kind of remembering is meant to lead to a greater appreciation of and a deeper gratitude for God's power and grace and goodness and overcoming all that stood against them. That same thing is true for us. So this likely may become a slide that we see more and more often as we continue to make our way through Ephesians. We must not forget that salvation has nothing to do with anything we have done. We were made alive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Is there something happening? There's a bird? Well, I'll be. <laughs> I thought to myself, is that slide particularly funny? I don't know what's happening. Like, oh, okay, well, try not to be distracted by eyes on the preacher. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, so we are saved. There is nothing that we do for our own salvation, right? We were made alive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our salvation is from God, through God, and to God. And Paul continues, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So though it may not seem like it at first glance, this is a text that thunders the timelessness, timelessness of the truth of God's word. What Paul speaks of here in the two verses that we're looking at this morning wasn't just true 2,000 years ago for some distant culture and people with whom we have nothing in common, not at all. Like we just saw in the somewhat silly example of the Browns and the Steelers, right? The principles and the realities that are spoken of in these verses are just as true for us today as they were then. Scripture is always relevant and contemporary. So at the time that Paul was writing, the world was basically divided into two groups, Jews and Gentiles. 
The Jews were the chosen people of God, the nation of Israel. We'll get into greater detail about what that means in the next verse. But everybody else in the world, everybody else was a Gentile. They were not the chosen people of God. So the divide between them was first religious. The Jews knew the one true God, and the Christian Jew knew that Jesus Christ was his son, the Messiah. But the divide went even further. It was also cultural and social, with lots of ceremonies and practices like circumcision, dietary regulations, um, rules of cleanliness. The divide was even racial. The people of God were very insistent that no one forget exactly who the true Israelites were. The bloodline went back to Jacob, not Esau, Isaac, not Ishmael, Abraham, and no one else. What they totally missed, and again, we'll get into this in a little bit, but all the differences and the separation between Jews and Gentiles were only there for a specific period of redemptive history and for the very explicit purpose of making clear the radical holiness of God. They were never meant to create unbreakable barriers between them, no matter how deep their differences went. As far as Jews and Gentiles were concerned, though, the division was absolute. Their differences, huge and complex on every level, were irreconcilable. Any talk otherwise seemed monstrous and impossible. The divisions in our culture today, Browns versus Steelers, right versus left, black, white, privileged, unprivileged, those all look like child's play compared to the aversion that existed between Jews and Gentiles. It was intense on a whole nother level. When you read the book of Acts, which is basically the story of the early church's birth, growth, and expansion, you really can't miss how big of a deal this whole Jew-Gentile thing was. I mean, worshiping the same God in the same way, in the same place, at the same time, was not computing, right? Especially for the Jews. And the greatest point of contention revolved around one thing. Gentiles didn't practice circumcision. For the Jews, circumcision was the mark that they were the chosen covenant people of God. The trouble was that the Jews had taken hold of this fact and they had turned it into an insurmountable problem. They completely misunderstood the teachings of their own scriptures and they had become convinced that the only thing that really mattered was a sign in the flesh. To them, that was everything. That was all important and nothing else mattered. If a man was circumcised, he was all right one of God's people, and if a man was uncircumcised, he was all wrong, and he had no hope. They misunderstood the entire point, purpose, and spirit of circumcision and created an immovable and invincible obstacle to those who weren't born Jewish. But it was never meant to be so. It was never meant to be used as some sort of badge of privilege 
The Jews were no better than anyone else. For centuries, though, up to the very day Paul was writing, the Jews looked down their noses on Gentiles, right? You can kind of hear that in how Paul wrote it. They were the uncircumcised. Because of their covenant relationship with God, the Jews considered themselves superior to Gentiles in every conceivable way, an attitude that understandably drove a deep wedge of hostility between the two groups. The thing is, is that even though the Jews got it all twisted up in their heads, it was true. The Gentiles didn't have the distinguishing mark of circumcision as evidence that they were, the part, they were part of God's people. However, what God ultimately desired wasn't circumcision in the flesh, but of the heart. And there were plenty of scriptures all throughout the Old Testament to show that. And we see the exact same thing affirmed all throughout the New Testament, that it is spiritual circumcision of the heart that marks the true child of God, which is why Gentile converts to Christianity were not required to be circumcised the way converts to Judaism were. Paul continues to state the obvious and urges them to remember five additional things that were undeniably true of Gentile Christians in Ephesus. First, they were at one time separated from Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. They were without hope and without God in the world. So what, was Paul just trying to like beat them down? To bury them in shame? Not at all. Remember last week, or in the previous 10 verses, the past three weeks we've been looking at, he made sure they knew that everybody knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jew or Gentile, that we are all born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are all by nature children of wrath. That is our identity apart from Christ. And it is only because of God's grace, his unmerited favor, that we are saved through faith and made alive in Christ. It is based on nothing that we do. We bring nothing to the table except our sin. God and God alone makes us alive in Christ. God the Father decided before the foundation of the earth to build a bridge for us. God the Son built it, and God the Holy Spirit empowers us to cross it. It is from God, through God, and to God that we are saved. So let's look more closely at each of the five additional statements that Paul makes about the Gentile believers in Ephesus. First, at one time they were separated from Christ. So Christ is the Greek term for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were three offices that involved anointing, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the final anointed prophet who came not just to proclaim God's word, but to reveal God in the flesh. Jesus is God's final anointed priest, our final mediator between God and man, making our salvation possible through his shed blood. And finally, Jesus is the final anointed king whose sovereign reign brings people under God's righteous rule. At one time, though, 
None of these things were true for Gentiles. Jesus wasn't their prophet. He wasn't their priest or their king. They had no Messiah. They didn't even know to be looking for one. That's because the Gentiles were excluded or alienated from God's people, the commonwealth of Israel. Lacking citizenship in the Jewish community, they lacked the privileges and the blessings that God had given his people, such as knowledge of and access to himself through the law and the sacrificial system. Because the Gentiles were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, they were also strangers to God's covenant promises. In Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he refers to the incredible privileges the Jews had, and he wrote that among other things, to them, meaning the Jews, belong the covenants and the promises. God made several covenants with his people, first with Abraham, which he later reaffirmed with Isaac and Jacob. Then there was the Mosaic covenant through which God delivered the law. And there was the covenant with David, when God promised to establish his throne forever, we now know that that was fulfilled in Christ because he was a direct descendant of David. And finally, the Lord promised to establish a new covenant when God's law would be written on hearts made new. All of these covenants were based on God's unshakable promises and all of them were central to Israel's existence and identity. But at one time, the Gentiles had no part in any of them, without hope and without God in the world. I'm actually going to take these two together because they're so closely related. But just let that sink in for a moment. No hope, not any, none. Life, that is life without Christ. Absolutely no hope. Martin Lloyd-Jones was spot on when he wrote, this is not pessimism. This is realism. This is facing the facts. It was true then, and it's true now. There is no hope in this life from God, apart from God, outside of Christ. I mean, we don't have to look far at all to know that. Listen to the news. Scroll through social media. You cannot deny it. Humanity is not getting any better. We are not getting any closer to peace on earth on our own. There is no shortage of disease, of poverty, of war and strife. Apart from God, there is nothing but chaos, darkness, and death. I don't care who you are or what you point to, this world is a mess apart from God. Now, obviously, God was and has always been very active in the world long before Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. But when he wrote these words that the Gentiles were without God in the world, what he meant was that the Gentiles had no subjective experience of God. He was there, but they didn't know that. They weren't enjoying him. They weren't worshiping him. They were without him. They were without all the help and the peace and the joy that come through personal knowledge of God and faith in Him. Again, just think about that. You know, no doubt their world like ours often felt like it was collapsing. They no doubt felt at times that everything was going wrong and that they were all alone. 
In their desolation and isolation, they had nothing. They had no one to turn to. They had no hope because they didn't know God. Can you imagine? Is there anything more desperate, more gut-wrenching than to be without hope, without God in this world, under His wrath, under His condemnation, passing away only to be eternally separated from Him? Now that is a sobering and frightening reality. It is not pessimism. It is fact. Paul didn't want them to forget that all of this had been true for them at one time as Gentiles. So this slide is hopefully familiar to most of you, and it helps us see the differences that lead to the divide that existed between Jews and Gentiles, right? The Gentiles were uncircumcised, alienated, sinful, lawless, without hope. The Jews were the circumcised ones. They were the chosen people of God. They were sinful, but they had the law. And because of it, they were self-righteous. But we're going to see, as we continue through the rest of chapter 2 in the coming two weeks, that in Christ, all of these differences fade into the background as Jews and Gentiles are united together in Him. So if you were here, you turned in a few weeks ago when David preached through chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you know that it was a pretty heavy message. There wasn't a whole lot of good news in those verses. Now, as we are reminded today, the Jews certainly had the blessing of being uh, part of God's people, set apart. They were the ones to whom Jesus would come and God would provide redemption for all of mankind. But at the end of the day, Jew or Gentile, our stories are all the same. We all start in the same place, dead in our sin, children of wrath, separated from Christ, without hope, and without God in this world. That is a bleak, bleak condition. But as David said, so I say again, that is exactly where we must start, and that is exactly what we must remember often. We must never forget that every one of us deserves God's wrath. Because of our sinful natures, we are and deserve to be separated from Christ. And there is nothing that we can do to bridge that chasm on our own. This is where the gospel must begin. This is the only way that we can understand why God would send His Son to become a man, why Jesus was crucified on the cross, why He rose from the grave and was placed at the right hand of God forever. Until we understand these things, and unless we are intentional about remembering them every day of our lives, we will never fully grasp and in humility appreciate the magnitude and the wonder of the gospel will actually believe the lie that we're not all that bad, that life without God isn't so terrible that we don't even need a Savior. All lies. Life apart from God is hopeless. But we are learning that that is a wonderful conjunction. 
It's one that Paul used in verse 4 and 5 after describing our desperate condition in verses 1 through 3. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He did it, y'all, all on his own, all because of his great love and mercy. And that's exactly exactly. What we're going to see next week in verse 13, but now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not only does Jesus bring us who were once separated from God near to him, he also makes it possible for these dividing walls of hostility between one another to be annihilated, and he makes us all one in him. I hope that you'll join us next week as we continue to discover the beauty of the gospel and what he has made possible for us together. Let's pray. Almighty God, holy, righteous, and good, we stand in awe of who you are and the lengths that you went to pull us up and out of death into the fullness of life in Christ. And it's all because of your your great love and your rich mercy. Lord, I pray that you would help us to never forget. Help us to daily live in remembrance and humble gratitude and overflowing praise because you have brought us near. You've brought us near to you and you've placed us within this incredible community called the body of Christ so that we can be one with each other through him. We glorify, Lord, your name, and we pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen. So as the band comes up and we continue to worship through singing, I wonder if any of you have ever felt far, far from God. I wonder if you've ever felt like an outsider, maybe, or that you didn't fit in, or you never, you'll never measure up. I wonder if you've ever felt too different from everybody else, even people in your own family. You know, kids in here, I remember when I was a kid growing up with three brothers, we had not a few fights because we thought we were right or we wanted our own way or whatever, when we could just just pick a topic, we could figure out a way to fight over it, right? It's not all that much different in the world. It's actually magnified exponentially a bigger mess everywhere we turn. You know, and as you see on this slide, again, we can come up with anything and everything over which to divide. Every foolish arrogance to keep us separated from one another. And these are just a few examples, right? We could go on and on. There are just myriad. But in Christ, all of that changes. In Christ, all of our differences take a back seat to the glory of Christ and all that he has done for us. He makes us one. So this morning, as we continue to sing, I encourage you to take time to consider how or when you may have felt like you were the one far from God, without hope, too different. Or perhaps you have been treating those around you as less than because of your own self-righteousness. I pray for humility, pray for unity in the church, a humility and a unity that reflect the living hope 
that each and every one of us has, all because of Jesus.